Chapter Twenty of Thomas Wingfold Curate by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty A Strange Sermon. On the Sunday, the curate walked across the churchyard to the morning prayer very much as if the bells, instead of ringing the people to church, had been tolling for his execution. But if he was going to be hanged, he would at least die like a gentleman, confessing his sin. Only he would it were bedtime and all well. He trembled so when he stood up to read that he could not tell whether or not he was speaking in a voice audible to the congregation. But as his hour grew near, the courage to meet it drew near also, and when at length he ascended the pulpit stairs, he was able to cast a glance across the sea of heads to learn whether the little man was in the poor seats. But he looked for the big head in vain. When he read his text, it was to a congregation as listless and indifferent as it was wont to be. He had not gone far, however, before that change of mental condition was visible in the faces before him, which a troop of horses would have shown by a general forward swiveling of the ears. Wonderful to tell, they were actually listening. But in truth it was no wonder, for seldom in any, and assuredly never in that church, had there been heard such an exordium to a sermon. His text was, Confessing Your Faults One to Another. Having read it with a return of the former trembling, and paused, his brain suddenly seemed for a moment to reel under a wave of extinction that struck it, then to float away upon it, and then to dissolve in it as it interpenetrated its whole mass, annihilating thought and utterance together. But with a mighty effort of the will, in which he seemed to come as near as man could come to the willing of his own existence, he recovered himself and went on. To do justice to this effort, my reader must remember that he was a shy man, and that he knew his congregation but too well for an unsympathetic one, whether from their fault or his own mattered little for the once. It had been hard enough to make up his mind to the attempt when alone in his study, or rather to tell the truth in his chamber, but to carry out his resolve in the face of so many faces, and in spite of a cowardly brain, was an effort and a victory indeed. Yet after all, upon second thoughts, I see that the true resolve was the victory, sweeping shyness and every other opposing weakness along with it. But it wanted courage of yet another sort to make of his resolve a fact, and his courage, in that kind as well, had never yet been put to a test or trained by trial. He had not been a fighting boy at school. He had never had the chance of riding to hounds. He had never been in a shipwreck or a house on fire, had never been waked from a sound sleep with a demand for his watch and money. Yet, one who had passed credibly through all these trials might still have carried a doubting conscience to his grave rather than face what Wingfold now confronted. From the manuscript before him he read thus, Confess your faults one to another. 
This command of the apostle, my hearers, ought to justify me in doing what I fear some of you may consider almost as a breach of morals, talking of myself in the pulpit. But in the pulpit has a wrong been done, and in the pulpit shall it be confessed. From Sunday to Sunday, standing on this spot, I have read to you, without word of explanation, as if they formed the message I had sought and found for you, the thoughts and words of another. Doubtless they were better than any I could have given you from my own mind or experience, and the act had been a righteous one, had I told you the truth concerning them. But that truth I did not tell you. At last, through words of honest expostulation, the voice of a friend whose words are faithful, I have been aroused to a knowledge of the wrong I have been doing. Therefore I now confess it, I am sorry, I will do so no more. But brethren, I have only a little garden on a bare hillside, and it hath never yet borne me any fruit fit to offer for your acceptance. Also my heart is troubled about many things, and God hath humbled me. I beg of you, therefore, to bear with me for a little while. If, doing what is but lawful and expedient, both I break through the bonds of custom in order to provide you with food convenient for you. Should I fail in this, I shall make room for a better man. But for your bread of this day, I go gleaning openly in other men's fields fields into which I could not have found my way in time at least for your necessities, and where I could not have gathered such full ears of wheat, barley, and oats, but for the more than assistance of the same friend who warned me of the wrong I was doing both to you and myself. Right ancient fields are some of them, where yet the ears lie thick for the gleaner, to continue my metaphor, I will lay each handful before you with the name of the field where I gathered it, and together they will serve to show what some of the wisest and best shepherds of the English flock have believed concerning the duty of confessing our faults. He then proceeded to read the extracts which Mr. Polworth had helped him to find, and arrange, not chronologically, but after an idea of growth. Each handful, as he called it, he prefaced with one or two words concerning him in whose field he had gleaned it. His voice steadied and strengthened as he read. Renewed contact with the minds of those vanished teachers gave him a delight which infused itself into the uttered words and made them also joyful. And if the curate preached to no one else in the congregation, certainly he preached to himself, and before it was done had entered into a thorough enjoyment of the sermon. A few in the congregation were disappointed, because they had looked for a justification and enforcement of the confessional, thinking the change in the curate could only have come from that portion of the ecclesiastical heavens towards which they themselves turned their faces. A few others were scandalized at such an innovation on the part of a young man who was only a curate. Many, however, declared that it was the most interesting sermon they had ever heard in their lives, 
which perhaps was not saying much. Mrs. Ramshorn made a class by herself, not having yet learned to like Wingfold, and being herself one of the craft, with a knowledge of not a few of the secrets of the clerical uh, prison-house, shall I call it, or uh, green-room, she was indignant with the presumptuous young man who degraded the pulpit to a level with the dock. Who cared for him? What was it to a congregation of respectable people, many of them belonging to the first county families, that he, a mere curate, should have committed what he fancied a crime against them? He should have waited until it had been laid to his charge. Couldn't he repent of his sins, whatever they were, without making a boast of them in the pulpit, and exposing them to the eyes of a whole congregation? She had known people make a stock in trade of their sins. What was it to them whether the washy stuff he gave them by way of sermons was his own foolishness or some other noodles? Nobody would have troubled himself to inquire into his honesty if he had but held his foolish tongue. Better men than he had preached other people's sermons and never thought it worth mentioning. And what worse were the people? The only harm lay in letting them know it. That brought the profession into disgrace, and prevented the good the sermon would otherwise have done, perhaps giving the enemies of the truth a handle against the church. And then such a thing to call a sermon. As well take a string of blown eggs to market. Thus she expatiated half the way home before either of her companions found an opportunity of saying a word. "'I am sorry to differ with you, Aunt,' said Helen. "'I thought the sermon a very interesting one. "'He read beautifully.' "'For my part,' said Bascom, "'who was now a regular visitor from Saturdays to Mondays, "'I used to think the fellow a muff, "'but, by Jove, I've changed my mind. "'If ever there was a plucky thing to do, that was one, "'and there ain't many a man, let me tell you, Aunt, "'who would have the pluck for it. "'It's my belief, Helen.' He went on, turning to her and speaking in a lower tone. I've had the honor of doing that fellow some good. I gave him my mind about honesty pretty plainly the first time I saw him, and who can tell what may come next when a fellow once starts in the right way. We shall have him with us before long. I must look out for something for him, for of course he'll be in a devil of a fix without his profession." "'I am so glad you think with me, George,' said Helen. "'There was always something I was inclined to like about Mr. Wingfold. "'Indeed, I should have liked him quite if he had not been so painfully modest.' "'Notwithstanding his sheepishness, though,' returned Bascom, "'there was a sort of quiet self-satisfaction about him, "'and the way he always said, "'Don't you think?' as if he were Socrates taking advantage of Mr. Green and softly guiding him into a trap, which I confess made me set him down as conceited. But, as I say, I begin to change my mind. By Jove, he must have worked pretty hard, too, in the dustbins to get together all those bits of gay rag and resplendent crockery. You heard him say he had help, said Helen. No, I don't remember that. It came just after that pretty simile about gleaning in old fields. Well, I remember the simile, for I thought it a very absurd one, as if fields would lie gleanable for generations. To be sure, now you point it out, acquiesced Helen. 
the grain would have sprouted and borne harvests a hundred. If a man will use figures, he should be careful to give them legs. I wonder whom he got to help him, not the rector, I suppose. The rector, echoed Mrs. Ramshorn, who had been listening to the young people's remarks with a smile of quiet scorn on her lip, thinking what an advantage was experience, even if it could not make up for the loss of youth and beauty. The last man in the world to lend himself to such a miserable makeshift and pretense, without brains enough even to fancy himself able to write a sermon of his own, he flies to the dead, to their very coffins, as it were, and I will not say steals from them, for he does it openly, not having even the shame enough to conceal his shame. I like a man to hold his face to what he does or thinks, either, said Bascom. "'Ah, George,' returned his aunt, in tones of wisdom, "'by the time you have had my experience, "'you will have learned a little prudence.' Meantime, so far as his aunt was concerned, George did use prudence, for in her presence he did not hold his face to what he thought. He said to himself it would do her no good, she was so prejudiced, and it might interfere with his visits. She— for her part, never had the slightest doubt of his orthodoxy. Was he not the son of a clergyman and canon, a grandson of the church herself? End of chapter 20 Read by John Sherman, Winfield, Illinois